Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. On today's episode, I have Lauren Finnerty. Lauren Finnerty is a nurse practitioner here at Victory Men's Health, and she's been trained through organizations such as AMMG, A4M, WorldLink, International Peptide Society, uh, just to name a few. So we had a little gap in the schedule this morning, so we came up with this concept super quick, and we decided to do 10 questions that you should be asking your potential provider or potential clinic that you're thinking about going to to treat your hormones. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the 10 questions and she's going to give the answer that you should be looking for to help you make the best decision when trying to find somebody to manage your hormones wherever you may be located. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you, Amy. I'm glad to be here. So I know we're on a limited time schedule here, 30, 40 minutes. So we're just going to jump right into it. So number one, how many men have you treated for hypogonadism or how long have you been managing patients' hormones? So patients looking to get their hormones treated really need to be looking for a provider that has either some degree of experience and or, I mean, everybody has to start someplace. Not everybody's going to have experience when they first start this, but they need to have proper training before managing men's hormones. Things to look at if they haven't been doing it for a long period of time are where have they received training through? Is this just on-the-job training or are they going through other avenues like certifications through A4M, AMMG, WorldLink Medical? The ones that you brought up at the beginning of the show are some great ones to look for. I know that just from personal experience, getting patients from a lot of local clinics that they are not hearing these kind of things. Their providers are not getting continuing education also, if they have not been doing it for a very long time, do they have somebody that they can ask questions to? Like, for instance, if they're a mid-level provider, like a nurse practitioner, if they're in a state where they cannot practice independently, do they have a collaborative physician to bounce questions off of if need be? What resources do they have available to them? So definitely you want to find somebody that knows what they're doing. There's a lot of cookie cutter men's clinics, we'll call it that are out there looking to make a buck. Every place is a business, but I would not be giving my business to some place without experience. How long have you personally been managing hormones now? A little over four years. Okay, perfect. And you know, me personally, I started with no background in it, but you also offer to the staff here plenty of continuing education. So everybody, like I said, has to start someplace. So you just have to make sure you're finding the right provider. Yeah, at Victory, we invest a ton into continuing education. I mean, we're going multiple times a year and we're rotating through providers and who's going, going where. So we take it, our continuing education very seriously. Yeah, And even with staff that's not clinical, we make sure that they know their stuff too. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of leads me into question number two. You touched on this. So if you're being seen by a nurse practitioner, does your medical director treat patients in this clinic as well? 
Yeah, so that would be a good question. Again, especially if it is a state where they have to have a, have a collaborative physician, you know, what is also that collaborative physician's background too? If they have no training themselves, how can you bounce questions off of them? So having somebody that is available, if the patient prefers to see the medical director, if they're in the office, a lot of patients do like and mostly see, for instance, our nurse practitioners in our offices but they also trust that we have that training too. So just knowing that you're not going to go in and have a phlebotomist answering your medical questions that pertain to your treatment, something like that. Yeah. So we do see other clinics in the area advertise, you know, come in and meet with our doctor. And because we get so many patients from those clinics, we know that there's actually no doctor on site that's actually seeing these patients. There's this, you know, phantom medical director in the background. And that's not the case at Victory. We do have a medical director on site that does actually see his own patients as well. And because we do run comprehensive blood panels, I feel like there are some times that we've had challenging cases that gives you an opportunity to collab with them because he is an internist and does see patients in a hospital setting as well when he's not at victory. Yeah, definitely. He's a great resource and things that we don't treat every day, but we might see something unusual in lab work. Okay. So question number three that you should be asking, do you have a preferred form of therapy, injections, cream, pellets? So if a patient is asking that, I mean, I guess here's the problem. A lot of clinics only offer one form. I would say probably one of the most common you're going to see is by far intramuscular injections. Some other forms out there that are maybe a little more common, there's a lot of clinics that maybe primarily do pellets and don't offer other forms too. And then you might find clinics like us that offer different options depending on the patient's wants, needs, how they can be compliant. So that would be like compounded cream, intramuscular. We do have some guys that do subcutaneous injections rather than intramuscular. And we do offer pellets and I can speak to a little bit about one. I might consider each of those things. I think some of the biggest things I usually tell my patients during a consult, you know, if they ask me what forms are available, I will always tell them I probably would be looking at something that keeps the levels more stable. So let's say you're going to a clinic that only prescribes testosterone or any medical provider, this could be primary care or urology. If they're doing less than once a week for an injection, it doesn't make sense. The half-life of the medication is such that the medication is going to be Part way out of your system by about a weekend, almost completely out by two weeks in, you're going to be on a literal roller coaster. Uh, once a week can be an okay starting point. I There's some guys that feel great on that. Arguably, in my opinion, twice a week is better, provide more stability, less side effects, don't get those peaks and valleys. But even if you are not feeling peaks and valleys, you are going to get a peak and a valley on a once a week injection. Subcutaneous would be another form where you can get a lot of stability, but without the intramuscular injections. I will say for some guys, probably the biggest complaint, it's an oil-based medication. It tends to cause a lot of irritation at the injection sites. So there are some guys that do it. They love it. You know, that can be daily dosing. That can be three times a week. But I'd say probably the vast majority that are doing injections here anyway are doing intramuscular then there's the compounded creams and specifically compounded creams. The If you're comparing injections to the commercial topicals, those are not well absorbed. They're not going to get levels like an injection. You're not probably going to feel a whole lot better. So we're using something much more potent. It does have to be compounded by a pharmacy. And specifically, which you've discussed in some of your previous episodes, this would be a transcrotal application 
you get something like eight times the absorption and applying it to the scrotum. Skin's very thin, very vascular. That one's daily dosing, so it also provides a lot of stability to patients. The I don't personally do a lot of pellets here because the problem is, even though it can keep some stability in the levels, you climb for a little bit, then you're cruising, then your levels are going back down. And those patients often come in here, like we get them all the time from other clinics, and their symptoms are coming back on the tail end, and they do not like it. I bridge guys all the time with cream to get those levels up. Most of the time they're on pellets either because they didn't like injections or because that was the only thing they were offered. So I think having options and not just some going back, I'm going to use the word cookie cutter probably a few times in this conversation, but a place that has different options because not everybody is going to like the same option. What does somebody want to do? Some people, whether they have bias based on their friends, coworkers, what they've done previously, they might prefer one way or another. Some people are just not going to be compliant with one way or the other. I probably do pellets most in guys that cannot remember cream or injections. Outside of that, I don't throw them out as an option. very. So you just have to find the right way for the right person and not everybody's going to be consistent with any one type. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think we sometimes see that the clinic's only offering that one delivery method and that's really not the right answer. There should be multiple mm-hmm. options for multiple different people. Not everybody's the same. So I like that answer. It's ultimately finding what somebody's going to be complying on and works for them. So the next question is, how do you determine your dosing schedule? So dosing schedules, again, if you're going to a clinic that just starts everybody off on the same exact protocol, I mean, there's a general idea about where to start. I mean, there's got to be a starting point Not everything is a perfect science, but if somebody is not offering more frequent injections, for instance, then I would say that's kind of a red flag. Or if you're going back to dosing less than once a week, like you might get some benefit, but you're really not optimizing at that point. You're getting that roller coaster effect too. So a dosing protocol should be based on maybe the needs of the patients. Also looking at lab value called SHBG, which not everybody looks at. But anecdotally, it seems to be that people, when that's lower, might seem to be faster metabolizers, really so that they tend to feel the peaks and valleys more on a less frequent dosing. So finding something that keeps stability is important, not just a one-size-fits-all for everybody. Okay, perfect. Question number five and the halfway point here. Do you take insurance or is it a cash pay clinic? So you can find some places that take insurance. However, if we are treating based on symptoms and not numbers, a huge number of men that come into our clinic are not going to meet insurance guidelines for insurance coverage. So a lot of these places will market that they take insurance and they're really not taking much insurance at all. It's a way to get somebody in the door. I wouldn't say that I would necessarily not go to a place that uh, takes insurance, but I'd be asking more questions about what they're taking insurance for, what would the out-of-pocket cost be, and making sure that that's something that you can, I'd like to use the word invest, something that you can invest in your health. I, I mean, obviously, sometimes cost is a concern for people, but you ne- shouldn't necessarily be diving into something if it's not able to be done for you too. And I think a lot of these clinics have false marketing claims for uh, something like insurance versus cash pay. 
Yeah, we have one clinic in particular that comes to mind that does heavy radio marketing in our market Mm -hmm. that says that they take insurance. And I have yet to hear of anybody say that it actually uh, was covered through their insurance. All the patients that we get from this clinic all come in that are paying the exact same price. So it's really unfortunate because it it kind of just it gives the industry a, a bad name. It's just no need to use marketing ploys. Just call what it is. Optimizing hormones cash pay is more than likely the way you have to do it to truly get optimal. Exactly. And I think it's unfortunate for the patients too, and it's confusing for them too. They don't understand why they're hearing that on you know the radio or what have you. And then they're hearing that most of these places aren't accepting insurance. And there's a reason for that so that we can treat you as a person, not the number on the paper. And many times you won't meet that you know fancy term for low testosterone hypogonadism if your levels are in the normal range. Yep, exactly. Okay. Question number six. Do you offer HCG therapy in addition to testosterone for testicular atrophy and fertility? So HCG, a lot of clinics do still offer it. Uh, You discussed this on another episode with Dr. Grant. I will say recently, especially around here in the St. Louis market, we've had a lot of patients that were told by their clinics they can no longer obtain HCG. Now, HCG, you can still obtain. The clinic might have to put in some work to find a place that is still compounding or not compounding, that it still has it available because it cannot be compounded by pharmacies anymore. But as you touched on on that previous podcast, Clomid is not a good alternative to HCG. There's no evidence backing it up. Does that mean it doesn't work? No, but where's the studies showing that it's a good alternative? So if somebody does not have that available to a patient in the event that they want to cycle that in for fertility purposes, or if they are concerned about testicular atrophy on testosterone, I'd probably be looking for another clinic, especially if still wanting more children or if that's on the table too. And then just making sure that the dosing is appropriate. I, you know, the other thing is some of these clinics have HCG, but their dosing does not follow with what you're seeing in studies for when they see sperm recovery, for instance. It might be okay for maintaining testicular size, fullness, what have you, but uh, perhaps not so much on the fertility side of things. Do you want to touch on when we see people come in on HCG just because when atrophy nor fertility is a concern to the patient? There we go. Cookie cutter clinic. I guess here's what I think probably is part of the reason for that. There's a lot of clinics that prescribe everybody who waltzes in the door, either HCG or Clomid as part of their protocol. And I guess the idea is that you're going to keep some of your testicular function up. But for many men, testosterone is something that they consider doing for the rest of their lives. And they're often done having children. So I'd argue that it's really a moot point what your testicles are doing. If you come off of testosterone, your production of testosterone will come back with age-related decline, of course. The HCG is not the thing that's mattering for the function there unless you are worried about those two things primarily, which would be the fertility and the testicular atrophy would be the main purposes. If they're also starting you off it off the bat, again, and if that's a patient's choice, I, I would give patients the choice if they wanted to, for instance, for fertility. But if everybody's getting it right whenever they start treatment, I mean, there can be men that don't tolerate it well, that have side effects. Like, how do you control the variables for what's testosterone and what's HCG whenever you're just putting people on a bunch of different medications at the same time? Yeah. And just to touch on the fertility part of it, 
we offer a really cool test called fellow where it's an at-home test for guys to to send off to know what their sperm count is. I am actually having the CEO of that company on the podcast here in the next few weeks. So the listeners will get more information on that, but it is a cool thing that we offer. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's a great idea too, if you're using HCG for atrophy, like no Medicare, or not for atrophy, but for fertility, no medication works 100% of the time. Checking your sperm counts while you're on it is probably very wise to just make sure it is working. It's all, that medication's not inexpensive and it's more difficult to obtain than it previously was. So make sure it's doing the job so that let's say you do desire to have children and you're not getting the proper response. Okay, then maybe you're the patient that needs to potentially cycle off of testosterone to meet those goals. And then on the atrophy, before we move on, just coming from a female perspective, I've never had a single friend say, oh, I wish my husband's balls were bigger. So just know, like, women probably aren't overly concerned about this. I understand if a a man might be, but I just want to give a female perspective on something that you're concerned about. Yeah, I'd say the vast majority of men and the over four years that I'm doing this don't care. And, And if they do, then they do like HCG is there for them. It's aesthetic. It's visual. If it doesn't bother you, why take an additional medication if you don't? Perfect. So number seven is, do you use a Remedex, a generic is called anastrozole, to lower high estradiol? All right. So if a clinic answers yes to this or they prescribe it in the affirmative, I think we've hit on this multiple times. I would run from those Mm -hmm. clinics. The evidence is clear. Those medications not only are not needed, they detract, literally detract from your benefits of testosterone and they cause harm. I mean, if you want the bone density of an 80 year old, sure, take it. If you want ED, brain fog, I mean, the list goes on and on. Cardiovascular disease, there's a reason that women, our cardiovascular risk goes up significantly after menopause. It's estrogen, and both men and women have estrogen. You never want to block estrogen in a man taking testosterone therapy. Yeah, I mean, this is a cancer drug for women. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can think everybody's pretty aware of the harshness of cancer medication. So why would we ever think you need to be taking that to live optimal? You, You don't. And we've beat this topic to death. So we don't need to spend any more time on that one. But We'll just reiterate the importance there. Question number eight, do you require blood donations slash phlebotomies in the situation of high red blood cells? So if a clinic says yes, I mean, I think you have to probably ask more questions about this one. We know that there's a black box warning on testosterone for increased risk for cardiovascular events and stroke. However, as we have discussed previously, it was based on a flawed study. There has been countless high quality studies that have never shown any increased risk. And on paper, when your red blood cell counts are elevated, that does not mean the blood is thick. That often gets thrown out as a term. So if they're requiring patients to donate just based on that number, I would probably question the necessity of that too. Now, There can be a difference between requiring and educating and offering, making patients aware that the red blood cell counts elevated, because what is going to likely happen if those counts are elevated, they are going to hear it from someplace else. If they're seeing their primary care doctor, they are going to hear, hey, your blood's thick, you're at a risk. And again, it can be confusing for patients. You're hearing two different things. I personally always like to offer patients additional evidence-based educational information on the topic so that they can make choice themselves, but I wouldn't be just donating, donating, phlebotomizing, what have you. What's going to happen is if you continue to do that, 
especially frequently, you're going to deplete your iron stores. And now guess what? You're going to feel like garbage for a whole new reason too. I'm always looking at the iron panel before I even suggest that somebody even considers a medical phlebotomy. If they're already low, you're not going to find me offering too. So I have had people that were donated into a significant deficiency come from other clinics. I don't think that that should be a requirement. I think it should be at the patient's choice, but I think they need to be educated on the topic and the actual risks there. Well, maybe you can elaborate on that just a little bit. And you were cutting out a little bit, so hopefully it's not a Wi-Fi thing and it's fine in post-production. But maybe you mentioned looking at the iron stores. Not everybody is running the same comprehensive panel that we're running. So what are you looking at there when, when you're saying that? Right. So the iron stores, specifically what we're looking at is the ferritin levels primarily. Now, you can look at iron saturation because the problem with ferritin is if there's a lot of inflammation in the body, let's say you're talking a diabetic or maybe you know a heavy drinker, what have you, it could push that ferritin up and hide an iron deficiency. So you kind of want to look at a full iron panel that has the total iron, the iron saturation, the total iron binding capacity, and the ferritin level. But your ferritin is your you know your typical marker that you definitely want to be looking at. Lab reference ranges can vary on that, but diagnostic criteria, if you look at UpToDate, which is a evidence-based resource for medical providers, is a ferritin less than 30 is iron deficient. Now, I wouldn't say 30 is necessarily optimal, but less than 30 would be your cutoff for iron deficiency. Okay. Question number nine, what other therapies do you offer that complement testosterone replacement? Not every clinic offers the same things, but are they only treating testosterone? Are they looking at big picture? Are they looking at other hormones? Do they have other supplements? What what other things to adjunct that life? Do they have other anti-aging offerings such as peptide therapy uh, while still available for some of these? The you know, do they have red light therapy? And not every place, again, is going to have the same thing, but there are a lot of places that are just testosterone and they don't look at the big picture of the, the whole person. They're not doing even a full lab panel. A lot of the time, they're just checking a few markers. And that's actually if they're checking labs with any frequency at all. Um, so, you know, just knowing that you, you are, that you have options besides just being thrown on testosterone counseling available? Do they have people that can talk about diet, exercise with them? Do they have in body scales so we can look at that body composition? Yeah, I would like to think of us as more of a longevity clinic. And I think that's what people should be looking for. Sexual health and the vitamins and micronutrient tests and grail cancer testing and red light beds and in body compositions and food sensitivities, like looking at the total body, not going to clinics that chase the shiny object that will inject your hair and your knees and you crack your back and do a facial on you and do Brotox. And I'm not talking that I'm talking looking at your physical body as a whole. And we do a phenomenal job at that. And if you're not in our market, and I would be looking for a clinic that that is looking at, you know, your overall health. And that's a good point, Amy. I mean, low testosterone and sexual health go hand in hand. If they're not treating sexual health, they're missing a big part of the problem. And a big part of that problem is decreased blood flow as you age. So testosterone is not going to solve all the problems when it comes to sexual health. It's a you know, it's an adjunct. It can be a tool, but it shouldn't be the only method of treatment. Okay, the last and final question. Number 10, how many times do you have your labs drawn and or have a consultation with the patient a year? 
bare minimum, if you are seeing a clinic that is not drawing your labs at least once a year, I would not be going to them. Really, they should be at least checking your testosterone levels and your PSA every single year, your blood counts too. You should be looking at not just those things, metabolic markers, your cholesterol, your vitamins. We personally do twice a year. And I'd actually say in an optimization space, I think that that is ideal. If you have somebody really dialed in and they're not making a lot of changes, I think yearly could be reasonable. But otherwise, I think twice a year. But when you're first starting treatment, if you're not getting labs about every three months so that they can make adjustments, that's not any way to treat testosterone. There's no magic dose. There's no magic number there. This should be symptom based. But the numbers are a piece of that puzzle. We need to look at the big picture, not just give everybody the same treatment. So three months while you're dialing in, every six months or so thereafter, anything less than that, anything less than once a year would go someplace else. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you for your time, Lauren. I know you have patients here starting shortly. As a reminder, if you could rate the podcast, share the podcast, I just got our Spotify recap and 60% of the people that listen to this podcast found it because somebody texted it to somebody else. So I mean, if you found this information useful or helpful, please take the time to leave a review or a comment or something like that, because it really helps, helps us out over here and gives affirmation to what we're doing and that we're putting out the right content. So I appreciate everybody tuning in and have a great day. Thanks, Amy.